So you'll see when you walk into our shops, we don't have customer fridges. We don't have uh, bar fridges. We don't have menus on the walls because that doesn't create a homely or cool environment. Now, in hospitality spaces, there have been studies that have shown that hotel guests want to reserve rooms with garden views and are prepared to pay 23% more than with traditional rooms. We would never use this stainless steel for the customers. No, any, any service they would touch should be warm. Welcome back to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. Imagine yourself on holiday by the seaside or in a forest on the top of a mountain. Do you ever get that feeling when you're away from the urban jungle, feeling of calmness and presence that only nature can provide? Most of us live in urban environments, and for all their merits, busy cities can be tiring places to live in. In fact, Many of us city dwellers spend upwards of 90% of our time indoors. So are the spaces we work, live and socialize in affecting our mental and physical health? Today we're exploring biophilia, a powerful design philosophy that is entering the mainstream and is likely to be at the center of the world's most desirable and contemporary hospitality venues in the decades to come. We'll be speaking with Xu Yun Chun of Noda Architects, Tim Schroeder, founder of Hagen Cafes. But we begin this episode with a conversation I had with Oliver Heath, one of the world's leading thinkers on biophilia. Oliver is a Brighton-based architect and interior designer and is most well-known for his biophilic-centered design philosophy. His considerable client list includes the BBC, Unilever, Bloomberg, and many more. Oliver is going to help us make sense of biophilia and give us ideas for applying these principles into our own cafes and workspaces. Welcome, Oliver. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. I wonder if you could just outline what is biophilic design? Well, biophilia quite literally means a love of nature. And basically, it explores humans' innate connection to nature and natural principles. And it sort of explains why when we choose to go on holiday to relax and unwind, we choose to go to spaces filled with nature. We go to the beaches, to the mountains and the forest. We know that being in and around nature makes us feel good. And, you know, quite simply, if I was to ask you to think of a space where you feel most happy, calm and relaxed and to picture that space in your mind, probably you're seeing a pool of water, maybe grass or flowers or greenery. Maybe you're seeing trees in the distance and blue skies with little fluffy clouds and lots of sunlight coming down. And it is really interesting how a majority of people have a very similar picture in their mind. And yet the spaces that we've chosen to live in, that chosen to work in, and that we're connected to are very, very different to those ultimate idyllic spaces that we see in our mind when we think of places where we feel happy, calm, and relaxed. So essentially, biophilic design is how we enhance those human connections to nature in the spaces that are so important in our lives. What's the history of biophilic design? Is this something that's just come out of the blue, or has, has there been a movement for some years in this area? So essentially, it was an idea that was first developed by the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm back in the 1960s and 70s. Basically recognized that to lead a happy and fulfilled life, one needed a, a deep connection to the natural world. These ideas were then picked up by the biologist Edward O. Wilson, 
who suggested that actually that humans uh, had a very close connection to nature because we've evolved in close connection to it. And the human mind has evolved and developed close connection to it. So essentially, he suggested that in order to survive and thrive, we needed to maintain that connection to nature. Now, these ideas were then sort of further developed by one of the godfathers of biophilic design, uh, Stephen Kellett, who basically devised a series of what we call patterns or features that allows us to bring elements of nature into the built environment. And those three patterns, those, those ideas are sort of separated into three key areas. The first is, is how we bring real sensory forms of nature in. So it might be about how we bring sunlight or fresh air or, or water or, or the subtle movements that we see in nature, or of course, plants and trees. The second aspect is what we call the indirect connection to nature. Uh, and that's basically how we uh, mimic or evoke a feeling of nature using natural materials, colors, textures, and patterns. And then the third aspect is what we call the human spatial response. And that's about creating spaces that are spatially similar to those that we sought out throughout evolution. So spaces that make us feel safe and secure, maybe like a cave with a fire, but also spaces that are exciting and stimulating and aspirational, you know, living, thriving, dynamic environments. So basically, those are the kind of three core concepts to biophilic design that were developed. Is biophilia going to be a trend because of where we are now? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are, there are some really key issues that you've mentioned that are going on. Our modern lives are heavily inundated with stress. Uh, the World Health Organization has stated that they see it as a primary cause or the, you know, a health epidemic of the 21st century. You know, a health and safety executive study from 2018-19 stated that stress accounted for 44% of all work-related ill health cases and 54% of all working days lost. So we're finding a lot of stress in our modern day lives. On top of that, we have very high rates of urbanization. By 2050, 68% of the world will be living in cities. Actually, in the UK, 90% of us are now urbanized. Um, and we spend an enormous amount of our time indoors. You know, 90% of our lives is spent inside, which is amazing. And as well as that, we have very high rates of mobile technology, which means that we always have the sense of directed attention. We don't give ourselves the time or the moments just to stop and switch off, to relax our eyes and to gaze out the window and onto nature. So I think for many of these reasons, biophilic design was happening before the pandemic. And now I think what's changed is that particularly through lockdown, we've realized that, you know, the buildings we surround ourselves in have an enormous impact on our physical, mental, and emotional states. And right now, we're not getting that diversity of spaces that we had in our normal lives, where normally we would be getting up in the morning, commuting to work, going to a cafe, maybe to a restaurant, you know, spending time at work, having meetings, and then at the end, you know, go to restaurants, go to a bar, maybe the theater or the cafe or cinema. You know, now it's just us at home. And I think lots of people have recognized as a result that singularity of spatial experience, that connections to nature play an enormous role in supporting people's physical, mental, and emotional states. So it's become much, much more important. And as a result, as we move out of lockdown, what I believe is going to happen is that people will take that recognition and need for nature back into our urban spaces. Fantastic. What are some good examples of either cities or projects or individual outlets that, you know, would embody what you would consider great biophilic design? 
Well, it's sort of interesting. We're seeing sort of uh, biophilic design happen in different ways around the world. In the United States, there's a lot of interest in biophilic design. And perhaps because it's more litigious, they're they're more uh, focused on the metrics of productivity. We're seeing a lot of interest in the integration of of nature-filled spaces. And you see it in all those kind of like beautiful campuses of, of those companies, you know, the vanguard of workplace design comes to Apple, Amazon, Google are integrating amazing nature-filled spaces. You know, look at Amazon's biospheres in Seattle and uh, just these beautiful nature-filled domes. And you look at the kind of endless loop, which is uh, Apple's Cupertino campus. It's just like a great big sort of donut-shaped building with this beautiful sort of park with walking meeting routes going through it. So many of these companies are starting to do it. We're also seeing biophilic design being embraced by the Scandinavians and a lot of forest-based nations because that sense of connection to nature is sort of in their DNA in a much closer historical timeline than we find in other areas of the developed world. We're also seeing it a lot in countries like Singapore, where they've actually renamed the city, uh, a city in, in a forest. So a fantastic example is the Royal Pickering Hotel in Singapore. And it's essentially a sort of hotel in a garden. And basically what it is is a series of sort of terraced green layers with palm fronds and greenery and there's sort of infinity pools. And you look out from your hotel room over through greenery and into the city, and it just gives this sort of wonderful, verdant sense of spaces. Uh, and you get that beautiful sense of light glistening off leaves and the gentle movement. And you just see, you know, the amazing effect it's had on certainly on the success of the hotel and their ability to put up room rates. But I think also that just the, the, the popularity of the hotel. So some fantastic examples from around the world. Um, in London, we've got the, the, the Sky Garden, which is a beautiful sort of viewing gallery. And um, you just sit in amongst this wonderful hill of trees and greenery and you go in these little nestled spaces and look out, get that sense of prospect. Wow. And is this being led by governments, led by property developers? Uh, where is this coming from? Well, I think one of the really interesting things about this design style and ethos is that it is an evidence-based approach. So there's 30 years of research that demonstrates that when you integrate elements of nature into the built environment, into different buildings, be that education, hospitality, healthcare, workplaces, it can have the amazing result of improving outcomes, but reducing negative costs. Now, in hospitality spaces, there have been studies that have shown that hotel guests want to reserve rooms with garden views and are prepared to pay 23% more than with traditional rooms. Separate studies have revealed that guests are prepared to pay 18% premium for rooms when they have a view onto water. And also that hotel guests spend 36% more time in biophilic hotel lobbies than conventional lobbies. And so remember, that's the time where they're going to be spending money on drinks and food without necessarily having a room to stay in. Thinking about hospitality in the micro, down to a kind of a level of an individual restaurant, what are some of the steps that an operator, an owner could take without the huge budgets of sort of urban planning projects? Yeah, I think it's important to recognise that actually, you know, by 2050, 80% of the buildings that we're going to be living in are already built. So actually, our challenge is really how do we refurbish our buildings in both a sustainable and a human-centred way, in a way that's affordable, accessible and appropriate. So I think what's important to remember is this is all about how we make humans feel better. So, you know, fundamental to this, I think, is access to natural light. 
because natural light helps us to rebalance our circadian rhythms. And our circadian rhythms are our body's reactions to periods of light and dark across a 24-hour period. When we have balanced circadian rhythms, we sleep well and deeply at night, we wake up feeling refreshed. And as a result of that, we can be productive, creative, we can be in a good mood. There's an interesting idea about the use of plants and greenery, which is around what we call statistical fractals. And statistical fractals are, are basically repeating patterns that we find in trees and branches and leaves that are ever so slightly different as they change in scale. Now, these statistical fractals are what we see and we derive pleasure from when we look at nature. Maybe it's the, the leaves on a tree or a plant. So integrating some of those very familiar, recognizable shapes is a good way to make people feel more relaxed. Added to that, a really nice sense, uh, an idea is, is a little bit of movement. Um, we use this idea called non-rhythmic sensory stimuli. It's a really complicated name for something that's, that's ultimately very simple. And basically, non-rhythmic sensory stimuli is that very gentle, recuperative sense of movement we find when we look onto nature. It's a little bit like leaves moving in a tree or ripples moving across a pool of water, or even that very simple thing of fish moving around in a fish tank. These things are sort of constantly moving, changing, yet in a way kind of remain the same. And it creates this idea... It's called a soft fascination. It just sort of allows you to drift off for a moment and this very gentle, non-threatening movement that allows you to kind of drift away and to recuperate. And it's very good at, at helping us to restore our kind of cognitive focus. Excellent. Wonderful. Thanks so much. That's a pleasure. I found the conversation with Oliver particularly enlightening, especially the example that hotels are able to charge more for rooms when guests feel surrounded by natural design elements. It suggests to me that cafes will see considerable financial benefits if they incorporate a biophilic design philosophy. If you want to dive deeper into Oliver's work, he's written a white paper titled Creating Positive Spaces Using Biophilic Design, which we've linked in the show notes. Now we're going to explore two individuals who have incorporated biophilia into their brand philosophies. This will help to contextualize some of Oliver's messages within Specialty Coffee. So next up is Xu Yuanqian, founder of Nota, one of China's top 100 most influential architects and designers. Xu Yuan's firm designed most of the cafes for the iconic Seesaw brand of specialty coffee cafes in China. Established in 2012, Seesaw operates 15 boutique specialty coffee shops, mostly in Shanghai. In one striking example, Nota designed a cafe that replicated the feel of a traditional garden, where the circular seating arrangement Shimmering blue floor tiling, flowing natural light, and an abundance of plants gives the feeling that you're on the edge of a decorative pond. Let's hear from Xu Yan how her firm has incorporated biophilic touches into Seesaw's trailblazing cafes. Welcome, Xu Yin. Thank you. So what I think is pretty clear is that the concept biophilia is much, much more than just incorporating plants. I wonder if you could yeah. talk about some of the other elements and the techniques you use to make up a biophilic design environment? Well, light is, of course, always the first thing we would consider. You know, we would do everything possible to welcome light in. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes they have to be filtered because otherwise it will be too strong. Uh, we, we use them also to create beautiful shadows for these plants inside. Oh, and at night, we would also use artificial lighting to do that. And also wood. We always use real wood. 
Sometimes we use a little bit of news, but that's really limited. Uh, like in several CISO projects, we had this concept of a water surface. Well, we can't use real water. <laughs> but what we did was to use um, terrazzo that feels like water. We actually did several sample tests to make sure it looks like real sunny water, you know, with the fallen leaves inside. Like with red and yellow leaves and a little bit of green branches, you know, things like that. I think it helps also, you know, when all of these materials come together, you know, to create this atmosphere of natural environment. But what are the techniques you use to make that human feel at ease in the space, you know, in terms of how you lay it out? It's first of all the space planning. You know, these scales in the interior, is, I think it's really crucial how you define the width of a corridor or, you know, when, when you are supposed to have a big open space and when it has to be really tight. Speaking of this, I have a case. Uh, in, in one of the CISO projects, we had this open corridor between the two operating coffee tables. Because the barristers have to operate like both ways, like facing front end and back, and the, the corridor has to be wide uh, enough for the you know these cars to come by and uh, people don't run into each other. So we defined a 1.2 meter wide corridor, but then another question came out. You know, it's too wide that the customers they might just walk into that corridor. You know, right into the kitchen. Uh-huh. So how do we avoid that? This became the question at the time. It's, it's an issue because I don't want to put a simple, you know, just swing door in the middle. <laughs> it looks stupid. So what do we do? And then we came up with the idea that hmm, instead of uh, saying, no, you can't go in, we might do something at the end of the coffee table to attract your attention. So we designed a round end for one of the table where the latte are coming out of the cups. And yeah, it's becoming a very successful approach because everyone just gather around the round table and watching the barista to do the final performance instead of just walking through, you know, into that kitchen. And there's another, another layer adding to it that is the material. We use for the furniture when where they would be touching is usually warm. In most coffee shops, we had to use a stainless steel for the tabletop because of this food safety bureau, you know, these issues. And but that's it. We would never use this stainless steel for the customers. You know, any any surface they would touch, we should be warm, and even a little bit rough, I would say, because the. I had a feeling that the smoother the surface is, the less comfort it might be, you know, for, for people. It's, we are like cats, too. <laughs> we, we, I think we prefer more, a little bit rougher surface, and that keeps us feel warmer. So wood is always a top choice. What kinds of wood? Laminated or solid wood? Yeah, well, wonderful. Now, mm. I've got a sort of a business question here is, all this sounds very beautiful and, and amazing, but... Is this type of environment very expensive to produce? Yeah. You know, is this only for the very fine concepts or is this something that, you know, biophilic environments could become more mainstream? 
I think for most of the spaces we did, it's not that costly, actually, because we are not using particularly expensive materials. The expensive part was actually the, the manufacturing process within that process. And for the biophilia projects, I think it's more the maintenance cost. Okay. That's a constraint for some of the clients. And they say, well, for plants, it's hard to maintain. You know, they, they would die, there would be worms, and etc. But I think I would tell them usually, you know, it's, it's like pets. You have to feed them, you have to walk them, you can't just enjoy their friendly and... <laughs> right? It's... You always have to pay for it. Also, every building conditions needs maintenance. So there are also professional teams who could do that. You know, just need to hire them a little bit more maintenance cost. I can't thank you enough for your time here today. Thank you. So to create a rejuvenating cafe space, Xu Yang suggests it helps to incorporate lots of natural light textured surfaces that are warm to touch, and clever use of tiles to evoke feelings and patterns of nature. And the best part, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money either, although you do need to allocate some funds to keep the ecosystem well-maintained. Finally, we're speaking with Tim Schroeder, founder of Hagen, a chain of premium specialty cafes across London. Today, Hagen numbers six coffee bars with 90% of their sales from coffee alone. And it's currently also working towards B Corp certification. Tim was born in Copenhagen, hence the name Hagen, and has taken a lot of inspiration from the Danish concept of hygge, as well as biophilia, two design philosophies that deliver warm and comforting environments for his customers. I am super delighted to be here today with Tim Schroeder, who's the founder, CEO of Hagen, and actually the Hagen Project. Thank you very much. Firstly, thank you very much for having us and having me. We're big fans. One thing, you know, on visiting your stores, you can't miss the fact that they're very beautifully designed stores with a complete sense of harmony and simplicity. And again, today, I'd love to unpack, you know, what's your vision of the design and what are the benefits of creating a design like that? So the design of your stores, what's the vision behind it? When we designed our stores and the journey and the vision, taking a step back, I always thought there should be something more to getting your daily coffee. Uh, there should be a little bit of sensification. So the first thing that we incorporated when we designed our bars, that was the space for interaction between customers and staff and also between the staff. So most of our bars, they are 360 or 270. I don't think we've done a full 360 bar yet where people can stand around our coffee making, view it and chat with people. And that means we're actually designing our shops to be interactive rather than maximizing bum and seats or maximizing the average transaction value. So you'll see when you walk into our shops, we don't have customer fridges, we don't have bar fridges, we don't have menus in the walls, because to me, that's not Hugo, as we call it in Danish. That's not, that doesn't create a homely or cool environment. It gives you a lot of sales, of course, but for us, first and foremost, we wanted to create a sense of occasion when you walked in and tell a story. Tell us about this hygge and how you portray that in your stores. It's a very overused term and it got commercialized a couple of years ago when Scandi started to be cool. It has different meanings across Denmark, Norway and Sweden. 
um, in Denmark, um, and the commercial idea of it is open fireplace and so on and so on. But it, it's actually more something that's more intrinsic. When I speak to my sister, I will tell her it was who good to speak to you. So it, it, it's something more intrinsic. It's about a connection. It's about seeing people. It's about enjoying the moment. And the funny thing is a lot of people talk about Scandi design, minimalistic. Danish design is actually not very huge. It's white walls, light wood, and very minimalistic. That's not warm and cozy. Um, so we actually wanted to do our own interpretation of it. And we explained to them, well, we actually created this space for conversation. And to give an example about Hugo for us and the design, we don't like sending people downstairs. We actually try to get units that has no downstairs. And even if we have a downstairs, we don't want to send customers down there. So we are actually, again, we're not optimizing for the number of seats. We're not optimizing for the best sales per square foot. But the funny thing is that that design in itself is making our service very efficient because people come in and out quickly. They stand, they chat with each other, they get the coffee and they leave again. So when we then compare our numbers, it actually turns out that we have sales per square feet that is matching some of the industry leaders that have way more experience than we have. So to summarize, first and foremost, the space is designed for human interaction. Elements of nature, what are the things you're looking for when you're taking a site that you incorporate that sort of life into your place? There's two things that come to my mind. We have these things called inside but outside that everybody lo- loves to sit in a bar. So one of the reasons why we, we chose to listen to what the Italians had perfected for many years was the operational efficiency of the espresso bar. So when you sit in a bar, you watch the world go by. And I think um, a lot of the elements that you're talking about from nature and, and watching the leaves moves, it's kind of the same that you have in an urban environment. You can sit there, you can enjoy your coffee and you can kind of be part of a conversation or you can just sit and relax. And the ultimate thing is, in my mind, is having a bar outside. In Italy, they call it El Fresco or El Banco. So we actually have a couple of units where we punch through the facade and have uh, have our marble counters going out through on the wall, on the road. So you sit on the road. So this notion of, of being part of the coffee making, being part of society, but you're getting a break. Then we have created something in Hague Malbon where we have what we call a Hugo Island. Uh, so we took a residential design element, which was the kitchen island. In Denmark, you call it Samtelkirken or Chatty Kitchen. And uh, that was something that came out 15, 20 years ago. And we thought that would be interesting to incorporate because we have the same notion in our bars. We want to be chatty and we want to see each other. So rather than having people facing the walls, again, we created a big bar island where people are then facing each other. We're probably giving up a, a, a little bit of seating there. They are also anchored in sustainability. So a lot of our units, they are based on what they were before. We will strip down two or three layers of floor, and then we find an old Tourette's floor we can repurpose, and we're going to do that. We're going to try not to touch too much electricity, but that also means that we need to then introduce certain elements that you may not see elsewhere. Um, For example, if we feel a unit is too cold because that's the shape that a unit arrives in, if it's a listed and and there's certain things that we're not allowed to do with it, we would put the carpet on the wall of the bar. So we have a bar in Belgravia and we also have part of this kitchen island or Hugo Island, as we call it, where we put the carpet around the side of the bar, just because that kind of warms it up. Great. And now to the nuts and bolts of, you know, you've found a site. What's the process you go by to turn that into that living space that you want it to be? So we work with designers where we try to, to really have a very iterative process. So it's very difficult for us to say how a unit is going to look. 
we know we want certain elements such as a, a 360 bow, 270 bow. We want to have people facing each other. And then how do we bring in traditional elements yet make them warm and hygge whilst we repurpose things as much as we can from the various units? So that's the visuals. The actual operational aspects, that's how do you optimize the flow? You don't want to have people standing outside in the rain, especially London, and queuing up. Neither do you want to have create bottlenecks inside. Again, we spend a lot of time uh, figuring out where we want to position our coffee machine, our milk station. For example, all our bars are open, which means that right next to where people grab their coffee, they can almost step directly into the bar because we want them to be as close to the coffee making as possible. This is drawn from sushi bars. It's drawn from normal alcohol bars. You want to see your bartender make your drink. It's fun to sit in the bar and see it. We want to draw that in. So we create a little bit of theater where we're putting our, our love for coffee and the art that our barista has. And we're going to put that on display. Tim, thanks for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having us. Can't escape the wondering battle. It was fascinating to hear how Tim incorporates 270-degree bars, which let customers enjoy the action all around them. That, coupled with warm surfaces, natural light, subtle use of plants and mirrors, all combine to create spaces where customers feel in their element. While coffee and food operators are firmly focused on getting back on track, after an unpredictable and incredibly challenging two years... I believe a focus on helping customers to feel at ease will be a central theme among the most successful and groundbreaking hospitality businesses in the years ahead. Life is there to be lived, so why not make our hospitality venues the most inviting human spaces possible? And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to The Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate a good rating if you enjoyed this show. Follow us on Instagram, Fifth Wave Coffee. That's number five, followed by TH Wave Coffee, all one word. Tell us what topics are important to you so we can make this show more relevant to you and to your business. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Brister. And this week's song from the Coffee Music Project is Coffee in Your Cup by folk Americana singer-songwriter Daisy Chute. And until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. And when it's me that's struggling through this life and feeling blue, I know what she'll do when I feel that life's too tough. And I think I've had enough When I'm down and can't get up You'll put the coffee in my cup And when you're down I'll bring you up I'll put the coffee